Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. Every dollar you give helps keep the podcast going. The indigenous people who lived in the future Atlantic provinces were the first to deal with the changing world of European arrival. A century or more before those changes reached the people of the prairies, the Mi'kmaq, Abenaki, Maliseet, and many more were dealing with the massive ramifications of the European arrival. Today I'm talking about the Wabanaki Confederacy. And the official Wabanaki Confederacy was formed in the 1680s to deal with the new common enemy of the English. But the roots of the Confederacy go back much farther. Made up of five principal nations, the Confederacy was formed to deal with the raids being conducted by the Iroquois, specifically the Mohawk, into the lands of the Atlantic indigenous people. But before we get to the Confederacy itself, I want to talk about the nations that form the core of the organization. Each group is more than just a part of the Confederacy. They have their own culture, beliefs, and histories. And I want to touch on each somewhat. As usual, anytime I'm dealing with indigenous history... I do my best to pronounce the names. If I pronounce anything incorrectly, I do apologize. The Mi'kmaq people had occupied the Atlantic region, specifically Nova Scotia, for centuries. And long before the arrival of Europeans, archaeological evidence dates land use and resource cultivation as far back as 4,000 years. With canoe routes being used for thousands of years by indigenous like the Mi'kmaq, moving from the Bay of Fundy to the Atlantic Ocean. There is evidence in oral history that shows the Mi'kmaq living in the area for as long as 10,000 years. Prior to the arrival of Europeans, the Mi'kmaq people lived in a relationship with the environment that included subsistence fishing, hunting, and gathering, with small settlements scattered throughout the region. The most important animal for the Mi'kmaq was the moose, which provided meat for food, skin for clothing, tendons for cordage, and bones for tools. Their territory traditionally covered part of eastern Quebec and the maritime provinces east of St. John River. The land would form many of the beliefs and stories of the Mi'kmaq. It was said that Gluskap, a cultural hero of the Mi'kmaq, created the Antilopolis Valley when he slept across Nova Scotia using Prince Edward Island as his pillow. 
His evil twin brother was said to want to make rivers crooked and mountains impassable, something Glooskap fought against. According to the oral tradition of the Mi'kmaq, the world was created in seven stages. The creator made the sky, then the sun, then Mother Earth, and then the first humans. Those humans were Glooskap, his grandmother, nephew, and mother. Glooskap then made a fire, and the sparks from the fire created the seven men and seven women, who were the founding families of the Migimagi districts. I'm going to play a film from the National Film Board made by Francois Hartman in 1986. It is about seven minutes long, but it tells the story of how Glooskap battled the giant winter to bring summer to the Mi'kmaq people. So enjoy. silence for a time. Then he offered it to his visitor. Loosecap smoked and listened as winter began to speak. Soon the listener fell into a charmed sleep. The giant talked on. His voice was the voice of frost, and with its magic spell, he hoped to keep Loosecap a prisoner forever. appeared. 
Glooskap rode on her back until they reached the land of which the loons had spoken. ran beneath trees clouded with blossom. Flowers turned their faces to the sky, and bright birds and butterflies filled the air. There was a sound of music. Glooskap listened. Then, in a clearing, he saw a group of lovely maidens weaving garlands of fragrant flowers. In their midst, stood a girl of such perfect beauty that Glooskap knew his search had ended. This was the princess he was seeking. She was Summer, the fairest Summer of all. Just then, the loons flew over the clearing and the maidens turned to watch the strange birds. That instant, Glooskap spirited away their princess and held her by his magic. He carried Summer so lightly that he skimmed the treetops as he set out for the north again. Yet the way was long and a moon passed before he stood once more in the snows of winter and faced the giant. Now, with Summer by his side, Glooskap had the stronger magic. He talked, and sweat beaded the giant's brow and ran down his face. Still he talked, and winter slowly began to melt away. disappeared, and the land reawakened. Glooskap said to the princess, Your coming brings joy to my people. They welcome you and beg you to stay. When six moons have passed, you may return for a season your home in the south. Then winter may visit us like a brother, as once he did. Now, each year, when it is time for the princess to come to Glooskap's people, 
awakens again to summer. The Mi'kmaq were one of the first group of indigenous to meet the Europeans, and their territory was the first portion of North America to be exploited by Europeans at length through resource extraction. Jean Cabot and Jacques Cartier brought back news of the bountiful fishing in the area, which would send more Spanish, French, Portuguese, and English fishermen and whalers to the area. By 1578, less than a century after first contact, it's estimated that 350 European ships were operating in the area, changing the Mi'kmaq way of life forever. It's estimated that from 1500 to 1600, 50% of the Mi'kmaq population was lost due to European diseases entering the land. Also known as the Maliseet, the Wola-Stokwe have occupied the area of the St. John River Valley in New Brunswick for thousands of years, surrounded by their future allies in the Confederacy. Prior to contact, the Wola-Stokwe were primarily hunters and fishers, but also practiced agriculture with growing beans, corn, squash, and tobacco. The Wolostokwe lived in wigwams and walled villages and used natural products such as stone and wood to make tools, weapons, utensils, and more. Their culture was governed by one or more chiefs on a tribal council that represented various families. They were, and still are, well known for their artistry, including creating beadwork, basket weaving, carvings, and quill work. The origin story of the Wallastokwe refers to a great spirit called Gisi Nawaski, who is a benevolent and abstract being that does not interact with humans. Gisi Nawaske created the entire world, but the tasks of transforming, taming, and maintaining the landscape fell to the hero Gluskabe. Many stories tell of Gluskabe, and he is the equivalent of Gluskap, as not a god, but a hero and trickster with the ability to manipulate the world to make it more habitable for humans. He tempered the wind, tamed the animals, and managed the waters. When Europeans began to settle in their lands during the 1700s, it pushed them off their traditional agricultural territory until they were pushed to reserves. At first, there was a stable relationship for a century between the Wolostokwe and the Europeans, but as time went on, hostilities with the French and English increased due to the encroachment on lands. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Occupying the lands of the Bay of Fundy, Passacomwade Bay, and the Gulf of Maine and elsewhere, the Passamaquoddy would move with the seasons, spending summers near the coasts and winters farther inland, where they would hunt. During the summer months, the food was primarily marine mammals, mollusks, and fish. 
There is evidence that shows their inhabitation of the area has gone back as long as 10,000 years, forming a deep connection with the land. Their name comes from the traditional way they would catch fish with a spear, with fishing being extremely important to the culture. Villages typically consisted of cone-shaped dwellings with a large council house. Tribal councils consisted of a war chief, civil chief, and representatives from each family that came together to decide on important matters. War matters were decided by the entire council. Navigation through the region was done using the many lakes, portages, and rivers to trade with other indigenous tribes. When Europeans started to arrive, the Passamaquoddy were repeatedly pushed off their land by European settlers, to an accelerating degree in the 1700s and into the 1800s. By the early 1800s, some pockets of the Passamaquoddy were reduced to only a few hundred people. For roughly 11,000 years, the Penobscot were believed to have lived in the Atlantic region of Canada and into what would one day be Maine. With hunting and gathering as their main lifestyle, they hunted moose, beaver, otters, fish, seafood, birds, and even seals. Some agriculture was practiced, but not to the extent seen where it was more temperate. The name comes from a mispronunciation of the traditional name they had for themselves, which was Penawapskui, which means descending ledges. The Penobscot would travel along the Penobscot River, which descended from their sacred mountain, Mount Karadin, down to the Penobscot Bay. Along the way, they would seasonally relocate, taking advantage of the bounty of the ocean in the summer and going inland to hunt moose and deer when the weather turned colder. Primarily a peaceful group, they would band together with other indigenous to fight against raids. The social structure of the society was grouped around villages, each that had a chief and a shaman. Tribal chiefs actually had limited power, usually acting as a representative of the tribe during ceremonies, resolving disputes, or dealing with visitors and outsiders. In 1524, the first European would reach the Penobscot named Astavio Gomez from Spain. Samuel de Champlain would follow in 1605. When the Europeans arrived, the Penobscot began to trade with them, taking advantage of the European desire for furs to get items such as metal axes, guns, and more. Along with these items, the Europeans also brought diseases that the Penobscot had no resistance to. It is estimated that in the early 17th century, the Penobscot numbered 10,000, but within 200 years, that number was down to 500. The homeland of the Abenaki covered much of New England and parts of Quebec and the southern Canadian Maritimes. The Abenaki called themselves Abnobak, which means real people, while Abenaki means people of the dawn. The culture was made up of smaller bands and tribes who shared cultural traits, making the Abenaki a linguistic and geographical group rather than a single tribe. There were also two geographical groups. The western Abenaki lived in the area of future New England, while the eastern Abenaki concentrated in areas of New Brunswick and Maine. Prior to the arrival of Europeans, the Abenaki were a thriving culture with expansionistic tendencies and a reliance on the cultivation of corn, beans, and squash. This allowed the culture to have a large population, and this helped to keep the Iroquois at bay from going too far into their land. The Abenaki also subsisted on hunting, fishing, and trapping. In addition, they were known to produce baskets made of ash and sweetgrass and boil sap to make syrup. They would travel using birch bark canoes and lived near waterfalls on major rivers during the summer to capture migratory fish. In this culture, they speak of Gisi Nawaske, also known as the Great Spirit or Creator, who, much like other cultures in the area, is seen as a benevolent being that does not interact with humans. In their origin story, Giwi Nawaske created the entire world when there was no sound or color. 
The creator filled the empty earth with life and light and commanded Tolba, the great turtle, to emerge from the water and create the land. Gizi then created the mountains and valleys on Tolba's back and the clouds above his head. Gizi then slept, envisioning different animals, and when he awoke, he saw that they were all a reality. Glusgap, also known as Glusgabe, appears in the stories as well. Prior to the arrival of Europeans, the Abenaki numbered about 40,000, but by the time Europeans arrived and started to settle, the Abenaki had lost 75% of their people through various diseases. Now that we've looked at the five principal tribes of the Wabanaki, we're going to look at the Wabanaki Confederacy itself. Small-scale confederacies were once located in the area of the future Wabanaki Confederacy in the post-Viking European contact world. The earliest known confederacy to occupy the area was the Mawushin Confederacy, which had its capital, Kadesquit, near Bangor, Maine. These early confederacies would play a huge role in the creation of the future Wabanaki Confederacy. Interestingly enough, when Samuel de Champlain arrived in the area, he reported that the people of the region, those who have already mentioned, had several European goods. These had come over with the Vikings 500 years previous and had been traded over and over through the centuries. Around 1680, possibly earlier, the Iroquois Confederacy, specifically the Mohawks, were raiding the lands of the future five nations of the Confederacy. To put these raids to an end, the Confederation was formed as a cohesive political and military organization that would defend the various lands of the Atlantic region. Another big reason for the creation of the Confederacy was the First Abenaki War, which lasted from 1675 to 1678. Fought along the border of New England and Acadia with the indigenous that would make up the Confederacy, fighting with, and I will do my best to pronounce this, but it's a mouthful, Jean Vincent de Abadie de saint Castille. The tribes would engage in annual campaigns against English settlements in New England in each of those years. The English, in response, would go north and attack the Mi'kmaq in Acadia. For the Abenaki, the war was highly profitable. Records show that villages such as Scarborough, Cape Nedic, Casco, and Arrowsick were destroyed by the Abenaki, and 260 English were killed or captured. In addition, the war cost the colonial government £8,000, no small amount at the time. In 1675, the Abenaki raided English settlements along the border, killing 80 colonists and burning several farms, causing a sharp reduction in English expansion. In 1676, the English were forced to retreat to Salem, with the Abenaki and their allies destroying several more farms. The Mi'kmaq also became involved that year, after they were attacked by the English. In 1677, more English settlements were raided on the border, once again blunting English expansion at the time. With the Treaty of Casco, the war ended, and the English promised to pay a symbolic fee of a peck of corn for every English family, and they recognized the sovereignty of the people of the future Atlantic provinces. In return, the indigenous recognized the English property rights in southern Maine and coastal New Hampshire. Around this time, the Kahnawaga Council was being held every three years as a neutral political gathering in Mohawk territory, consisting of the indigenous people of the East Coast, St. Lawrence River, and Great Lakes. From this council, the Maoshin Confederacy was formed, allowing those member nations to challenge the Iroquois along the St. Lawrence River. This confederacy allowed for the free movement of indigenous through member lands and as a formal union against the encroachment of the English on their lands. From this idea and example, the Wabanaki Confederacy was formed. Wabanaki means Land of the Dawn, 
and within the Confederacy, symbols and ceremonies kept it alive. The wampum was especially important with each wampum belt having a design on it as a message from one nation to the Confederacy, or from the Confederacy to a member nation. These belts were kept to show past exchanges among the nations and were often read aloud at meetings. One wampum record tells of why the Confederacy was created. It says, Long ago, the Indians were always fighting against each other. They stuck one another bloodily. There were many men, women, and children who alike were tormented by these constant battles. It seemed as if all were tired of how they had lived wrongly. The great chiefs said to the others, Looking back from here, the way we have come, we see that we have left bloody tracks. We see many wrongs. And as for those bloody hatchets and bows and arrows, they must be buried forever. Then they all set about deciding to join with one another in a confederacy. The Passamaquoddy Wampum Record tells of the event that took place to lead to the formation of the Wabanaki Confederacy. It said, Silently they sat for seven days. Every day no one spoke. That was called the wigwam was silent. Every council had to think about what he was going to say when they made the laws. All of them thought about how the fighting could be stopped. Next they opened the wigwam, it was now called Every One of Them Talks, and during that time they began their council. They had all finished talking, they decided to make a great fence, in addition they put in the center a great wigwam within the fence, and they also made a whip and placed it with their father. Then whoever disobeyed him would be whipped. Whichever of his children was within the fence, all of them had to obey him, and he always had to kindle their great fire so they would not burn out. This is where the wampum laws originated. That fence was the Confederacy Agreement. There would be no arguing with one another again. They had to live like brothers and sisters who had the same parent. And their parent, he was the great chief at Konawaga. And the fence and the whip were the wampum laws. Whoever disobeyed them, the tribes together had to watch him. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Within the government, there was a council of elected Sokums, who were respected listeners and debaters, rather than rulers. Typically, they were older members of extended families who were known to have the ability to settle disputes. The politics of the Confederacy was rooted on reaching a consensus on all issues, and this often resulted in a lot of debate. As a result, those Sokums who were skilled at debate were highly influential within the Confederacy. Regular conventions at various seats of government in the Confederacy were held with the Sokums whenever there was a need to come together. At a council fire, as the seats of government were called, each member sat in a rectangle so that everyone could face each other. Each member would get a chance to speak and be listened to, and they were expected to listen to others. 
Within the Confederacy, there was never a single leader and never a single seat of government, resulting in the Confederacy being decentralized throughout its history so that no member tribe would have more power than any other. The various member tribes which fluctuated beyond the core five in number were not completely independent of each other. Sanctions could be placed on a tribe for creating a problem, and if a Sokum died, the newly elected Sokum would be confirmed by allied tribes in the Confederacy who would visit following a year of mourning. The effort to appoint a new Sokum was a long process that took weeks. Upon the death of the chief, the people went into the mourning for a year. At the end of the year of mourning, the council of the bereaved tribe would send messengers to the other allies, inviting them to come raise up a new Sokum in the place of the deceased. Terms such as brother, father, and uncle were used to describe the other tribes in the Confederacy. While the Passamaquoddy, Maliseet, and Micmac were called our younger brother, depending on the order of the tribe age rank in comparison with the Konawaga Council. For example, the Maliseet called the Penobscot and the Passamaquoddy elder brother and the Micmac younger brother. The Ottawa were called father for their role as a leader in the council and in being the tribe that issued binding judgments to help maintain order in the Wabanaki Confederacy. It is important to state, though, that this did not mean that the members of the Wabinaki were subservient to the Ottawa, but this was that they recognized them as founders in the Confederacy in some ways. Each of the Wabanaki tribes had their own council house for meetings in the Confederacy. The Penobscot had Old Town, the Passamaquoddy had theirs at Pleasant Point, the Maliseet at St. John Valley, and the Micmac had theirs near Digby, Nova Scotia. The Confederacy also had roles for men and women, while the women did not have an overt part of decision-making, they did have veto power. One interesting aspect of this was the departure of embassies was delayed out of custom. The host tribe would take out a wampum, the one meant for delaying departure, and read it, saying, Our mother has hidden your paddle. She is granting you a very great favor. This meant that they were not allowed to leave, and that the women were central to granting that permission. There were many customs and protocols in the Confederacy. It is described as such regarding the Micmac. When the messengers came to the country of the Micmac, and the Micmac see a canoe coming carrying a flag, the chief gathers his soldiers. He says to them, Those who are coming arrive here as messengers. Then all of them, children and women and men, walk down the hill to greet them. On the military side of the Confederacy, it played a key role in several important conflicts. In all, the Confederacy played a part in seven major wars between 1675 and 1763 when the British defeated the French in North America. This includes the Micmac War that I had talked about on a previous episode and the French and Indian War of 1754 to 1763. During the American Revolution, under the Treaty of Waterton signed in 1776, the Wabanaki Confederacy played a key role in supporting the Americans. As a result of this treaty, Members of nations that were part of the Wabanaki Confederacy in Canada can join the U.S. military to this day, and have done so all the way up to the Iraq War. By the end of the American Revolution, the population of the Wabanaki Confederacy had been decimated by epidemics, war, and famine. The people of the Wabanaki Confederacy would lose much of their land during this period after the Revolution. Black Loyalists were resettled, as many as 3,000, by the British in return for serving in the revolution against the Americans, and they were settled on the historic territory of the Wabanaki. Due to the British suppression of the Acadian, Micmac, and Black people of the Atlantic provinces, this often caused them to be allies in various matters, and intermarriage was common. 
The Wabanaki Confederacy would continue until 1862, when the Penobscot withdrew amid the British forcing the disbandment of the Confederacy within Canada, followed by the others by the early 1870s. The Wabanaki Confederacy did not disappear forever. A gathering was held in 1993, and the Sacred Council fire was lit again, and embers from that fire have been burning on a continuous basis since then. The new Wabanaki Confederacy brought together the Passamaquoddy Nation, the Penobscot Nation, the Maliseet Nation, the Mi'kmaq Nation, and the Abenaki Nation. In 2010, after the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People, the member nations began to reassert their treaty rights and work to preserve the ecological attributes of their land and deal with the health issues among their member nations. I hope you enjoyed that episode on the Wabanaki Confederacy, and if you did, please leave a rating and review. You can reach me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.com. You can support the podcast by going to patreon.com slash canadaehx. Remember, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just like all of these wonderful people have. Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roy, Luke S., Vic Hedges, J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, Spencer M., and Iris Gray. As well, if you want to connect with me, you can find Canadian History X on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash Canadian History X. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And you can find me on Instagram. Just look for Bairdo37. Information comes from the Canadian Encyclopedia, Britannica.com, the National Film Board, New Brunswick, Canada, Legends of America, Wikipedia, Genealogy First, and Maine University. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.